Well, tis the season to be merry and bright, and doesn't a glass of wine go a long way to helping with that? Well, we think so. And on today's Harvard Data Science Review podcast, I, Liberty Vitter, feature editor at HDSR, along with my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Shali Meng, take a deep dive into the world of wine. We are joined by two expert guests, Professor Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University, who is also the president of the American Association of Wine Economists, and Don St. Pierre, the executive chairman of Vinfolio, the U.S.'s leading wine marketplace, investment advisor, and professional wine storage facility. Prior to Vinfolio, Don co-founded with his father, China's largest wine importer and distributor, ASC Fund. On the podcast today, we find out the future of wine, but most important to me, we find out all the tips and tricks for how data can help us decide what wine to buy when we're at the store, how to impress our friends at the holiday tables this year, and what every potential wine connoisseur should know. Don, thank you so much uh, for joining this uh, podcast. And uh, as you know that we're starting getting the holiday season, we're already in the holiday season, many consumers certainly would be interested in uh, getting some good wines with decent, you know, uh, price. As you know, that our nation is facing this uh, supply chain problem. And I was wondering whether similar problem occurred in the wine industry and if there are any data for that, and if so, how data science can help. Well, thanks, Ali. Uh, thanks for the invite. Happy to be here. Um, yes, the wine industry is dealing with supply issues that are going to affect or are affecting consumers and their access to wines. You know, if you look at what's happening in the restaurant business throughout the world, demand that would be much more predictable from that sector is very hard to understand. And then if you look at retail demand, it has skyrocketed. Um, And uh, even though I think most retailers, including the company that I'm involved with, Finfolio, Uh, have put a lot of effort into determining what future uh, demand will look like. It's just been very hard. For an example, for champagne as a category, uh, we had forecasted growth in demand amongst our client base of 30 to 40%. And what we're seeing is 50 to 60% growth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our forecasts were off and that's one problem. But the other problem is due to supply chain disruptions, we just are not able to get the wines that we had ordered into the country soon enough. So, you know, we're faced with a kind of a double whammy, one being our forecasts based on the data we had, uh, not quite as strong as what we're seeing. And then second, just unable to get the product uh, into the country because of shortage of shipping containers and uh, a number of other problems. I see. And uh, I assume because we're talking about alcohol here, they're probably even more restrictions about distributions, even during the kind of, you know, without the supply chain problem, particularly in terms of the government regulation, both the state and the federal. Do those play a role here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they do. I think the supply chain issues, the global supply chain issues are playing a bigger role. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the supply issues that relate to regulation are issues that have been affecting the consumer and their ability to access wine for quite a long time. But in the short term, the, the issues that we're dealing with on supply chain is much more fueled by the logistics, the global logistics problems because of COVID and inability to accurately forecast demand. 
Orly, I feel like this seems like we're almost getting into the the economist aspect of these types of issues. So how does that work, you know, with the utility or the trade-off with government regulation um, versus free trade in this sense? You know, of course, we don't want alcohol to become some sort of societal problem, but we also don't want to get so bogged down in regulatory processes. So how does this trade-off work? So, So just to make it clear why this is a case, uh, we had national prohibition of the import, export, uh, manufacture, or sale of alcoholic uh, beverages, uh, intoxicating spirits, it was called in the constitutional amendment, uh, by, con- by amendment of the American Constitution, uh, one of a relatively small number of amendments, and certainly the only one that was repealed. But the repeal basically stated that the previous amendment is repealed. And then it goes on to say, that this doesn't in any way affect what the states can do. The result is that this is the only only American product that is not subject to the normal rules of free trade. Free trade, within our country, we're a customs union, and you can send anything you want anywhere you want, Mm -hmm. but not booze. They clearly implied that you could regulate up to the point of making a state be dry, which in fact Mississippi was until 1959. Uh, so there were states that remained absolutely forbidding any alcoholic sales up until the 1960s. Um, and some states allow localities to ban sales, and they do. In Texas, for example, there are many counties that are dry. So what the problem here is that this has created a conflict between the dormant commerce clause, which seems to be what we normally rely on for the fact that we're a custom union. I mean, people all over the world try to become customs unions. The group of countries within which there's free trade, European Union is an attempt to do that. Uh, We already have it, but we don't have it for booze. So it's an exception. It would have been better (laughs) if they had just repealed it. Unfortunately, that's not how it occurred. And what that means is if you have a producer state, let's take California as an example, they have very loose regulations. If you have a Bible-thumping state, my favorite is Arkansas, which actually had a very large wine industry prior to Prohibition. Many Swiss French are there. And there are still wineries there, as a matter of fact. But they, there, if you go on their on one of them's website, you can look at the website, and they, they have what they call their online store. And it says, we cannot ship wine out of the state of Arkansas. In fact, we cannot ship wine in the state of Arkansas. That's the online store basically telling you that you have to come to the winery to buy the wine. Wow. This is a really interesting information that uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, or the listener would, would appreciate. Uh, but I think the other thing I want to ask you, Oli, you have uh, done really lots of very interesting studies, particularly about predicting uh, the wine quality, which, uh, you know, what, what make a wine great. And I think that's a, a kind of thing that uh, lots of consumers are, you know, be very interested in myself included. And so from your studies, uh, what did you think, what are the major factors uh, did you find would really make a difference in terms of winemaking? Well, what you're probably referring to is this famous Bordeaux equation, it's called, which is a, a way to predict mature wine prices from the Bordeaux area. That area is especially useful to study because um, the wines from that area last for a very long time. Uh, I just drank a 40-year-old bottle 
uh, yesterday, and it was in excellent condition. I was very happy with it. Um, and so the result of that is that people buy more than they drink, and that means there's a secondary market in the older wines. So mm -hmm. Bordeaux is a very unusual. Most, most places don't have wines of that level. And the other thing about them is it's huge scale. Uh, it's huge scale. It's enormous. It, it's a typical example of how the French can actually make an extremely expensive product at scale. Hardly anybody else can do that. Huh. Um, you know, the same is true of fashion and everything else. Uh, so I studied that. And, and there, it's pretty common knowledge now, at least I think, that what determines the quality of the wines from vintage is rainfall in the end of the growing season. That's August, September. Wow. Temperature during the growing season, because it's typically hard to ripen grapes there. And then since they didn't ever permit irrigation, rainfall in the winter is good to bring the water table up. All three of those things are pretty highly correlated. You can solve the problem of winter rain by just irrigating. It's pretty hard to solve the other two. You can't really stop the rain in September and you can't really make it get warmer by pushing a button. So the other thing about that Bordeaux region is that it's been a long history of establishing uh, which are the best vineyards. So what generally happens is that there's a pecking order for the vineyards and that pecking order stays stable from year to year. So what happens when the weather is good is it, it's like uh, all boats are lifted. And the same thing, I, I use that and I have, have some help with it too, but you can use that same principle to figure out where it makes sense to grow grapes. For example, what I just described to you, uh, no rain in August and September, really hot in the summer and rain in the winter, what, 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 what area of the world has that? Well, California. That's exactly the climate in California. Napa Valley, perfect place for it. But there are other places in the world where you can actually uh, grow grapes. I once predicted that there would be a very good Pinot Noirs made in, in Moravia in the Czech Republic. And I predicted that 20 years ago. It's now true. Climate change affects all of this, of course, but it's a way, once you know how it works, you can try to figure out what, how climate change affects what the quality of the wines will be. Anyway, that's the, that's the basic idea. Don, I, I want to turn to you because that basically uh, brings up this big question about climate change and uh, as, you know, how important it is. So I want to just hear from you as an industry leader. What are kind of information that uh, you and your fellow winemakers or industry leaders are looking for? in terms of, uh, you know, the climate change and how that impact the future wine business? Well, uh, you know, first I should say, I'm not, I'm not a winemaker, but I do know quite a few winemakers. And I think what I'm hearing in my discussions with them is a, a terrific amount of, of worry, angst about the future because of climate change. And Olney's point about how you have in Bordeaux, you have you know, a long, long history of production of wine. Uh, I think if you look at the wine industry in general in Europe, um, you've got many, many multi-generational families involved in the wine industry. And these families have kept relatively meticulous records of climate over the years. And so I think they have got a lot of information about weather patterns, rain, temperatures. And what they're now convinced is that um, these changes that are occurring are, are having a big impact on the quality of the wine that they're producing. And so it, it is a, a major worry. 
Uh, I think this past growing season, 2021, was one of the more difficult ones that Europe had ever experienced. And it's interesting because a lot of people talk about the frosts that happened in many of these top growing regions of Europe. And the problem really was not specifically the frost. The problem was how hot it got before the frost hit. And because the temperatures had gone up more than it had in the past, there was bud break. The buds started to break open and then frost hit. And when that happens, pretty much everything that bud break had, had happened with, the frost kills. In the past years, frost had come, but bud break had not happened yet. So that type of phenomenon is extremely worrying to producers. And, um, you know, there's just an enormous amount of effort now being put into trying to understand how do you deal with that? Because as only said, you can't, you know, you can't change the weather. So they're looking at different, uh, different type of grape varieties uh, to plant in regions that traditionally had planted only specific type of grape varieties. So, you know, I think climate change is, is for producers around the world a major cause for concern. Now, I will say in some regions, it's actually benefited. If you look at the UK and you look at the champagne production there, because it's getting a bit warmer, I think that's actually helping them. I think uh, argument can be made that in Napa, uh, it's helped, but also you could say the fires because of uh, climate change has offset the benefits they've seen in more predictable weather it's a really big deal. And uh, fortunately, I think the industry understands the, the significance of it and is very much focused on trying to find solutions. The other answer, of course, for all this is adaptation. And that can go both ways, right? So if you're in a cool climate, you can, you can look to grow grapes that are harder to ripen than you're used to. And uh, if the problem is if you're in a really hot area, what are you going to do? I mean, the Greeks have grapes that are almost impossible to ripen, <laughs> but I don't think they have any, any place to go. So uh, there, there it's hard for them to ameliorate, except by changing the locations of where the grapes are grown in that place. Another area is the, is the Piedmont area in Italy is actually done very well by this too. And the, the grape growers there know this. I mean, the winemakers there know this. They, they I went to a conference once for the, one of the German organizations that that is involved with uh, grape growing and winemaking the man started right off by apologizing for the fact that climate change had been so good for them even though it was so harmful for everybody else you know we've talked a lot about you know the factors that go into good wine and the weather but i want to think about how to help an average wine drinker you know all this there's so much data out there about wine and what you could buy or what you couldn't buy but if i'm at the you know, the wine store, you know, how the heck am I picking out a wine? I'm at a, I'm at a big wine store. I don't know anything about it. There's eight zillion to pick from. What do I look for besides, you know, going on Vivino and looking up every one? What do I look for? Let me give a couple of answers. And I'd like to hear what Don has to say about this. This kind of depends on the situation. For example, there was a time when I bought a lot of Cabernet wines from Napa, which I think are outstanding. But the entry point now for those wines is 50 bucks. And there are many of them that go over 100. They're, they're not really affordable on a regular basis by most people. I, of course, still remember when they were $10, not, not $50. So you have to be adaptable. You have to think about what is a good deal now. 
I, I hadn't been to a wine shop in two years after going to a doctor's appointment, which I was, which, which I thought was kind of stressful. I, I went to a wine shop, my favorite wine shop, very good prices and an enormous selection just to treat myself, you know, and, I, and then also to look around. I was just curious, what are the things that look like good deals? And I bought two things that I thought were probably the best deals I could run across. One was from Italy. It's a grape called Barbera, which is a grown and is never very expensive. It's not considered the fancy grape from the area where it's grown. Those wines are less than $20 typically, and they can be extremely good and certainly good value. The other area I looked to was Alsace. I'm very fond of Alsatian wines, especially uh, the Bertstreiner, which has a kind of a flowery character. Those really good bottles of that wine can be found for less than $20 also. So those are two areas that I just discovered by wandering through to see what was on offer that seemed to me like places where you could see good value. Otherwise, it's pretty hard to find good value. Your best shot is to get as much information as you can off the label about where the grapes came from. The difficulty with this is that the more information you get, probably the more expensive the wine will be. But normally, when people are very anxious to put the name of where the grapes came from onto the label, that normally means they spend a lot of money on those grapes. And that may or may not show up in the price of the wines. That's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is think about local wines. So I actually grow grapes in New Jersey. Uh, and we have quite a decent, a lot of very good wines. And these wines are, do not command the price of these fancy agro-cabernet Sauvignon grapes. And these, and I, I can tell you, I can put the wines up against Napa Cabernets and we can, people will be shocked. But they don't cost anything like as much. So look local. And when I say that, it's not, I'm, I'm in New Jersey, but there, Virginia has a lot of local wines. Um, the, if you go far north, it's hard, but even in Minnesota, I've been to wineries that have very good wines. How do they do it? Well, they have these hybridized grapes that can stand the winter. Uh, it's true in almost every American state that there are some, some good producers. The problem is a lot of times they aren't good, but if you pay attention, uh, you may be able to find a good producer. And then once you find that producer, you can lock into their club and you can buy wines at very reasonable prices. You know, even a place like Nebraska has a, a famous grape called Tempario, which is a cross between uh, a riparian grape and Tempranillo. Uh, that, I have never been able to get a bottle of it, but I'd love to try it. Kansas has 30 or 40 wineries. Michigan, Michigan Lake Shore, my favorite Chardonnay for quite a long time came from that area. So those wines are just ridiculously cheap by comparison with fancy French wines or even um, fancy California wines. So I would say look local, try to do, see what you can find out about where you live. That's a great tip, Don. So I, I think identifying a grape variety that you like and then exploring that grape variety and different regions that produce that grape variety is a wonderful way to learn about wine. So if you like Merlot, if you like Cabernet Sauvignon, if you like Chardonnay, you know, exploring uh, producers from different regions that produce that grape variety I think is a great way to learn. But I will say, I, the business I'm involved in is a combination of fine wine and technology. And I, you know, I think one of the things we need to be careful about in our world today is, is you know, generally speaking, we're trying to simplify things. We're trying to make things so much easier for the consumer. And you know, the wine, wine industry by nature 
is a very fragmented, complicated journey. And I think that's what one of the things that makes it so unique and compelling. And I think one, it's one of the things that will continue to allow the wine industry to be relevant moving forward in a world where uh, technology is going to be dominating things much more than it does today. So, you know, I, I kind of want to embrace the difficulty of choosing wine. You know, I think it's, it should be a little bit challenging. And I think efforts to, to simplify it and make it easy for everyone are not necessarily in the best interest of the consumer or the producers in the long term. Well, this reminds me that I, you know, tend to tell my students when they ask me about wine, I said, in statistics, I seek simplicity, but in wine, I seek complexity. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if they get the point. But I want to uh, follow up with you, uh, Don, that you mentioned about, you know, the industry you're in and... Uh, I'm particularly interested in again, for also data science audience is what kind of data science plays a role in your company? Because I know you you trying to understand the consumer's behavior and you know helping them to decide when to sell, when to buy, when to drink. I assume there are enormous amount of data involved in, in that kind of planning. You know, we're involved in a in a fairly specialized sector of wine, which is the fine and rare wine area, and we deal with a lot of people that have far too much wine. <laughs> it's it's not really a, a big problem, but in our world it is. And what's interesting is that because of the inefficiency of distribution of fine wine, the end result is too few people uh, and consumers having far too much wine. And because there's not such a great way to understand for most of these consumers, drink by dates, when they should be drinking, what they have, what the value is, they tend to just sit on these wines and eventually the wines start to decline in quality first and in value later. And so, you know, what we see data being very important for our business is giving consumers a better understanding of when they should be drinking their wines, better understanding of the value of their wines, so they can make more informed decisions about what they should drink and what they should perhaps sell. Because the thing is, there's a whole bunch of other people across the street or in a different state or in a different county that would love to purchase these wines uh, that these consumers have too much of. So for us, for our business, data is incredibly important to building our marketplace um, because we want to allow consumers the ability to trade wines, uh, to give other consumers the opportunity to buy wines that individual customers have too much of. And it's all related, goes back to how inefficient distribution is and, you know, how in the end, fine wine producers end up with too few customers for too much of their wines. How do you decide something like um, for like a wannabe, a newbie wine connoisseur like me, what would be the best advice for somebody when you're trying to figure out about whether you're going to buy wine from one of these people that has too much? What's sort of the best advice to start something like that? Well, I mean, I think you start out with what you what you want to do with wine. If if you want to just consume wine, which sounds like that's your goal, not to invest in wine, um, then I you know I think you want to go back to what I said earlier about identifying grape varieties that uh, you like, and then start to build a collection around those grape varieties that are from different parts of the world, and that allows you to really start to explore and understand how unique wine is. So. You know, if you're a Pinot Noir lover, 
you know, starting with, with Pinot Noirs, perhaps in Sonoma, um, but then moving to Alsace, uh, where Pinot Noirs are, are wonderful, or, or of course, Burgundy, where, where they're best known. But, you know, picking a great variety and then really exploring different regions, including your local regions that produce these great, that same great variety, I think is a great way to dive into wine and start to learn more about it and make sure that what you're purchasing is aligned around what you're interested in. People often ask me, what about a club like the New York Times Club or the Wall Street Journal Club or, or some of the wineries have clubs? Uh, and I actually often think that's not a bad idea. Uh, Eric Asimov runs a kind of a, he calls it a wine school in the New York Times where he prescribes certain wines for you to go buy and then ask for you to send comments to him about it. It's the same idea. And it's basically the idea, you have to experiment a little bit. The TTB, which is the taxation operation that has to approve wine labels, has to approve roughly 250,000 labels a year. And these are not just changes in vintages. And the scale of the variety is just unbelievable in the way of wine. So you have to get a little organizing principle. And one organizing principle is the, the grape type. That doesn't work for every wine. Uh, Bordeaux doesn't label, the wines are not labeled by the grape type. People kind of know what they are, but they're not always the same. So they aren't labeled the way these California wines are and many others, other parts of the country. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hijacking this a little bit because clearly I have an interest in this, in this answer to this question. But, um, you know, you're at, a, you're at a restaurant and you look at the wine menu and you have no idea what you're doing again. And, you know, for example, you see, you know, mom, you know, both a California and a France and one champagne and one's not. How do you determine which one to get if it tastes the same? Or, you know, do you pick the second most expensive wine or do you pick the cheapest? Or is there any sort of tips or tricks to when you're ordering wine? Yeah, I have a champagne rule. This rule is only for real champagne. Okay, so real champagne comes from France, a certain region of France. My rule for real champagne is always buy the cheapest. The minimum standard for real champagne is extremely high. There is absolutely no reason to buy Dom Perignon. You will have a very, very happy experience buying, I don't think you can get one for less than $35 now, but buying uh, a champagne for $35. Now, a separate question is California versus France. And I gave you the rule if you're going to buy real champagne. But if you're going to buy something that's not, you want to buy a sparkling wine. We don't get to call that champagne anymore. You want to have sparkling wine. That's a trickier question. And it's tricky because it's a little bit like, you know, when I ask you, do you like a Granny Smith apple or a Red Delicious? Red Delicious. Okay. Okay. Good. Then you want the California wine probably. Red Delicious is something that has a lot of sugar and not very much acid. Granny Smiths have some sugar, but they have a lot of acid. And that's the difference between European and American preferences. You, you can tell when someone had, like if you buy ketchup in the United States, Heinz, and compare it with ketchup from England, you'll notice it's much sweeter. That's because Americans like sugar. We like sweet. Well, now I'm very excited. I don't need to spend more money on champagne anymore. This is great. You know, if you look at Bordeaux in the, great, in the, in the good to great vintages, you can do the same almost. You can pick a producer at a lower price point on a wine list from a 2015 vintage or a 2005 vintage. And, you know, it's, it's normally going to be very good wine. I think the Vino's app actually has a pretty cool 
tool where you can use it to scan wine lists and give you some information pretty quickly. I would also add that in the states that allow you to bring your own bottle, that's the best solution for me is just to bring my own bottle of wine. Then you eliminate all the complexities of the wine list and also I don't have to deal with some of the ridiculous markups that we find uh, restaurants have. I do have my own kind of a restaurant question, and this has happened to me uh, more often than I than I admit that uh, you know I uh, you know joined various dinners and sometimes wine tasting events, and and you find these you know great bottles there. You 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 had a great fun, and uh, I took pictures, and I come back and I buy this wine myself. Then I drink by myself. Then it just tastes different. Clearly, there's a interaction between like you know how do you pair the food. And also pairing the people, like who are you drinking with? And uh, I, so I, I have a serious question to both of you. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a serious question. I have a friend in the yeah. woods who always said, all wine is the same. The only thing that differs is what you're eating it with and who's around you. That's more <laughs> or less your point. That's a great one. But, but I was going to ask is, uh, are there any uh, uh, scholarly articles on this kind of research? Like this is much more psychologically, uh, you know, oriented. Since it's particularly only for your Journal of Wine, is there any articles ever published data on this kind of study? I don't know. The Journal of Wine Economics has quite a few things that touch on that issue. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody who tried to measure the effect of place. I mean, there are a lot of anecdotes about it. For example, uh, Retsina. This is this resonated, terrible wine that they drink in Greece. It's got, you know, tar in it. Uh, and people will drink that on the beach and say, this is the greatest thing. And then they'll buy the same bottle in the United States and say, this is terrible. Well, that's because in Greece, you're sitting on the beach, you're eating a barbecue. That's nothing to do with the wine at all. Zero. So it's extreme to say that all wines are the same. Uh, and it's only the people and the things that you're eating. that That's extreme. But there is something to it. And I've never actually seen anybody who tried to measure what that influence is like. You couldn't design an experiment to do it. Yeah, Shelley, I, I also am not, I'm not aware of any studies that have been published about that topic. I would say from a personal experience, the, the environment that you're in makes an enormous difference on how you remember the wine or how the wine tastes at the time. I, I often get asked, what's the, what's the best bottle of wine I've ever had? And inevitably it goes back to uh, an experience I had with certain people that defined for me what the best wine uh, I had in my memory. Not the, not the specific taste of the wine, but how the wine, how I remember the wine relative to the company and the environment. Yes, that's a great point. And um, my uh, final magic wand question this is to both of you that if you could wave your magic wand to get anybody of the wine in the world, what would you want to have to drink yourself? And what would the one you would get for investment? So on, on my side, it really goes back to what we were just talking about, the memories of place and people. And I've been uh, fortunate enough to have a lot of wonderful experiences in Bordeaux. And of all the great experiences I've had in Bordeaux, I guess the most memorable have been at Chateau Latour. And for that reason, the, the wine that I would, you know, that I would most like to drink uh, if I had to just pick one, would be a wine from Chateau Latour and then specifically from their magical 1961 vintage. And I've had the opportunity to, to drink that wine. But I would say 
only if it's directly from the Chateau, because I've also had the opportunity to drink a 61 Latour that hasn't been uh, as good as what I had from the Chateau. In terms of investment, I think it's interesting to look at the impact of crisis uh, on investing in wine. And I think if we look at the global financial crisis in 08 and 09, and then we look at COVID, both of those global incidences have created great investment opportunities in wine. So if we look at the 2008 Bordeaux, generally speaking, the prices that they released those wines at in 2009 were very, very low relative to the quality. And the reason they released uh, at those prices was because of the global financial crisis. If we look at the 2019 uh, vintage of Bordeaux, again, the quality very, very high, uh, price relatively very low because of COVID. So those are two examples of vintages, the 08 and the 19, that because of external circumstances, uh, they, they represented incredible purchasing opportunities, incredible investment opportunities. Totally. When we start with the investing side, you're going to invest in wine. If you're going to buy a lot, not if you're going to hold it and expect to drink it reasonably soon, you really have to think about the liquidity of it. How hard is it to sell? Uh, Bordeaux wine is easy. There are secondary markets everywhere for Bordeaux wine, and there's always demand for it. Restaurants always want it. It lasts for a really long time. So there and and there are price points that are not ridiculous. So they, there are many many varieties that you could possibly look at, and that's why I, I always recommend Bordeaux. I have a bunch in my cellar that will probably get sold by my kids at some point. They won't have any trouble selling it. Now, as to my personal thing, uh, <laughs> you really, you went right to the top of the Chablis Tour. <laughs> it's a very difficult. That's a very expensive bottle of wine. I don't even know. 61 Latour, I meant but today it's probably 10,000 a bottle or something. You know, I, I have some, some that I like that are not so well known that are that are specialty things. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if they still make this wine, but Ridge Winery mm-hmm. in California, up near Stanford, made uh, for years a Petit Syrah from the York Creek Vineyard. When that wine gets to be 15 or 20 years old, it's phenomenally good. And it isn't terribly expensive, but it's very hard to find an old one. And it's not so interesting when it's young. I'm not even sure if they still have get the grapes from that York Creek Vineyard. There are a few other examples like that. I, I love really old Alsatian wines. They can, if you get a really high-end Alsatian wines, Vendage Tardive, they're called sometimes, or late harvest. Those wines can last a long time. Uh, and I, I have had incredibly pleasant experience. My wife always loved those wines too. So that's another reason why they were special to me. And I guess my third one that I'd always point to is Heights Martha's Vineyard Cabernet. That's an expensive mm-hmm. wine. It's a special one for me because I knew Joe Heights. And when I first met him, I had written about his wine, actually, because it was so expensive. I, I had a little ranking of wines based on prices. I first met Joe and he said, Orly, it's great to meet you. I hope you know, I also went to Princeton. I teach at Princeton. I said, no, Joe, I didn't know that. Yeah, Princeton High School in Illinois. <laughs> Either he took me down a peg, just he knocked me down a peg right off the bat, you know. Anyway, I still remember the last time I met with him and Alice, she said, you know, he had a stroke. He was toward the end and he couldn't say very many words. 
But Alice said, no, we're going to sit down. We're going to taste wine like we always do. Nothing's changed. So we sat on a taste. And finally, I couldn't help myself. At this time, these so-called cult wines from Napa were popping up. And Joe had been early on one of the early cult wines. And uh, so I couldn't help myself. I had to ask him, Joe, what do you think of these cult Napa Valley wines? And he, he only he did one sentence. He said, 10% grapes, 90% bullshit. <laughs> well, now I know exactly what wines I need to be buying on my Christmas list. <laughs> and what a wine to avoid, right? <laughs> exactly. Well. And uh, thank you for this uh, really intoxicating conversation. And this brings to uh, not only the end of this episode, but also brings to the last episode of this year. And on behalf of Liberty and, and myself, I want to thank both of you again for your uh you know great conversation and tips i also want to thank our producer atina uh as well as our executive producer rebecca for a whole year uh, hard work and to bring this broadcast to, to live i obviously want to thank all the listeners and uh, i think i hope that this episode provide all of you some good tips um i know this has been a tough year for almost everyone so we can all Use a glass or two, of course, drinking responsibly. And uh, I hope you got the great tip, which is to buy the cheapest champagne, the real champagne, but the cheapest champagne. And if you really can't find the cheapest champagne, buy any wine, as long as you find the right person to drink with. And happy holidays. 